Hi everyone. It's Certified Forgotten Time. I am one half of your Matt hosts. I am Matt Monagle. I am here to guide you through the underworld of underseen horror films. Oh, I like that. I should keep that. Um, it is August 24th today. I don't know exactly when this episode is going to run out, but it's the first day of the Republican National Convention. If Yay. that's on your mind, trying to frame it a little bit for the mood that you might be hearing from the three of us. But, uh, you know, before we do any of that, before we do to talk about what's going on in the world, and before we introduce this week's amazing guest, I got to give a shout out to my buddy, Matt Donato, who is literally talking through this podcast with like a bad tooth right now. He is going to grit it out and he's going to bring you horror, even though his mouth is, well, it's not doing great. Hi, how you holding up, friend? It hurts. It honestly hurts a whole lot. But uh, I have to wait until my company figures out why they forgot to put me on their dental insurance before I can get it looked at. So oh my God. today has been tons of fun, but for some reason when I'm talking, it's just either distracting me or where the pain is. Uh, it's not being hit on my gums. So I'm just going to talk a lot on this episode, apparently, so I don't feel pain anymore. That's amazing. Do you have, are, are you self-medicating appropriately with whatever IPA or thing you have in your, your fridge? No, because what I am dealing with right now is irritated by alcohol and spicy foods. So Shaboy oh. is going to be eating oatmeal and drinking water for the next few days until this shit goes away. Oh, this is, this is going to be either our best or our worst episode because of that. I'm going insane. I am honestly losing it. So probably for the better. Well, um, let's not put our guest at a disadvantage then. Let's, uh, <laughs> Let's rally and give her a very strong welcome. Matinato, will you please introduce who we're recording with today? For y'all today on the podcast, we have someone that has brought us a movie that is, as we've already talked about before the episode, exactly why we do Certified Forgotten. And when we got this pick, we were so excited to have not only a talented guest on, but to have a pick that so represents everything we do here. So to voice and champion everything that is webcast we have a freelance writer and scarred for life co-host mary beth mcandrews hi hello i'm so excited to be here mary beth you were telling us earlier that it's a little strange to be on the other side of the microphone right to be the, the guest so uh how are you feeling you're, you're ready you're ready to just sort of let loose and react as opposed to plan yeah, I have a iced coffee. It's 9 p.m. I'm drinking coffee because I am a daredevil and I'm ready to talk and I'm ready to not have to edit the podcast. Those are very good answers. <laughs> I love well, how, I, I'm drinking iced coffee because I'm a daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone gives me shit because I'm like, I, I coffee does like coffee keeps me like on an even keel, but it doesn't really keep me awake. So I can drink it whenever, which is a bad thing. Probably that's probably doesn't mean anything good for what my body, my body, but it's fine. Oh, I mean, beer keeps me awake, so I have oh. an even unhealthier habit that gets oh, me through perfect. every festival that I go through. I mean, whenever I'm at like, Fantastic Fest, everyone's like, Donato, how do you get so much work done? You you stay up so late, you party, you do all these things, and I'm like, alcohol. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I don't know why. As long as I'm not getting belligerently drunk and stupid, I stay awake at night by just sipping on a beer. and just like It, it just evens me out, and it keeps me in that perfect like place where I don't get tired. I'm still coherent enough to write, and I just bang reviews out, so... Yeah, I have a way unhealthier habit for staying awake. Don't worry. Wow. That's so impressive. I feel like I have one beer and I'm ready to go to bed. Yeah, this is, uh, I've been practicing, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've perfected it, Donato. You're not a practicing alcoholic. You're a professional. All right. Sorry. No, that's that's a joke. I'm working alcoholic, at least. <laughs> working alcoholic. Functional. Um, yeah. Decently functional. Okay. Just continue, Matt. I'm going to no, keep good. talking to make the pain go away so you have to shut me up. <laughs> We're, we're, we're good. I'm sorry that I'm going to ask Mary Beth questions now and won't let you talk for a second. But on that note, 
You know, this is the part of the show. If you listen to Certified Forgotten, we love to get to know our guests. We love to learn a little bit about them and their relationship to horror. So, Mary Beth, let's let's kind of start there. You know, what was your horror origin stories? Where did you find yourself first discovering the genre? You know, those movies that you fell in love with, probably if you're like everyone else we've talked to at a slightly too young age. Oh, yeah. What did, what did that look like for you? Um. So, yes, I was introduced to horror at the tender age of four. Oof with uh the steven spielberg classic jaws um my grandfather on my dad's side didn't see what the problem was um and i couldn't go swimming in the ocean for four years and i thought they were going to come into the pool and get me with shark like i thought the sharks were going to come into the pool into the bathtub like i was terrified so of course i loved it um and so and then so from there i kind of was nervous around horror stuff for a while but my dad is really, really into horror. And so he kind of got me into the genre and got me really into it. And then I kind of that snowballed into me being really obsessed with horror constantly and like trying to find the weirdest shit on the internet when I was in high school. Um, and then I went to, when I went to college, I took a horror film class and it changed my life. So it kind of like, made me rethink what I wanted to do with like writing. And from there, it's just been like, I got a master's in film and wrote my thesis on horror. And I just love writing about horror. So that's kind of like the abridged version of my relationship. It's always been a part of my life. I sort of feel like if you're going to introduce your kid to horror, before that, you should explain to them how the, the, the environment that the horror movie is taking place in works. Cause if you, if you're a kid and you don't understand that like a pool is a different body of water than like a river or the ocean, then you don't get to watch that movie. You need to understand like how the how the environment works first, and then then you'll be okay, right? Yes, and also my grand my grandpa has a uh, record of doing this. He did this to my cousin with Saw, which is arguably worse than Jaws. That's so, much worse. so much worse than Jaws. So I'm I guess I kind of got lucky in that way, but I don't think he understands that children can't really understand what's happening with those kinds of movies. Also, wait. To be fair, I have. A deep knowledge of how those movies work and how beaches are not showers or bathtubs. I still think a shark's going to come out of the shower. I mean, that still doesn't stop me from believing that a shark will break through the tile in my bathroom and eat me while I'm taking a shower. Well, yes, but this is also 2020 where there have been like 17 sci-fi channel movies where sharks are literally coming out of your bathtub. Like it's a whole different environment now. It's it's true. Sharknados are everywhere. We can't get away from it. It's just become part of culture. <laughs> So let me let me ask Mary Beth when you you know when you were a kid and you were engaging with horror and it scared the shit out of you and then that that was it right like as it is for everybody um, you know as you were growing a little bit older and as you were learning that like these kind of movies were not just something that you could watch but you know maybe do more with study or, or think about you know make connections with people that also like these movies where like where did your part of the genre start pointing to what was the the subgenre that you were like, I like horror, but I'm really into X. What, what was that thing for you that you discovered was the subgenre of horror that worked for you the most? Oh, it was the new French extremity horror movement. <laughs> like, oh, you do not fuck around. I don't yeah, fuck, fuck yeah. around. I don't fuck around. Um, so in that co- class I took in college, 
Um, we watched High Tension and Inside because my professor was very into the new French extremity and I got sucked into it. I was obsessed with it. I thought it was so fascinating. I thought the characters in these films were so gross and complex. And I wanted to, and I wrote a paper about the final girl in High Tension and how that movie plays with the trope of the final girl. And that was like the, my favorite paper I ever wrote as a sophomore in college. So, you know, don't look at it now. But I was so in love with this intense genre that was gory, but it wasn't like torture porn because I didn't like movies like Hostel or Saw. Um, I, I like Saw now, but I just didn't really like torture porn. But these movies felt more than that to me. I think... There's, it felt a little bit deeper than Guts, though it might not be. But so I really got into thinking about those movies. And those were the movies that like really got me interested in writing and got me really wanting to do like my master's thesis about New French Extremity. So yeah, that was the one. And I, again, I don't fuck around. It was new, <laughs> it was blood, guts, and French. <laughs> yeah, but I think I agree with you that they had story though. And that was the big factor that also drew me to New French Extremity. And even going as far as to say movies like Frontiers, and there was this one called uh, La Muerte, uh, The Pack, which were more mm. like off the beaten pack at the time, uh, New French Extremity. But it still had this kind of overseas storytelling that we really weren't getting a lot at the time in the States. And they were ambitious, and they were also gory as hell. And so I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying in the sense that as a practical effects person, I was drawn to the fact that you could have practical effects in a film that took these like super ambitious swings with storytelling, was able to balance both in the way that, again, in the States at that time, what are we talking about? Like the pack came out like 2010, maybe 20, 2009. Mm-hmm. It's just all kind of the same kind of stuff in the States. Exactly. And so, and I, like, I loved, I mean, I was always looking for weird things on like sketchy websites to watch. But again, my focus was really on American films. I don't think I had really expanded to like international horror. And so that was one of my first like big exposures to um, international horror. And so I think that really opened my eyes to like what the genre can really be and accomplish and how it can be filtered through so many different lenses, which I think that was what really got me in love with it was how horror is so complex and so personal yet so universal if that makes any sense yeah i I learned way more about the world and culture through horror than i ever did in college anthropology classes or anything like that like my yeah through through that lens um i like i wrote about it for um hawk creek horror even it was my awakening in a way that there was a bigger world and there were things outside like small town suburbia because i lived that white picket fence kind of life and i grew like i grew up around people who look the same and thought the same and talked the same and it's funny to me now after digesting years and years of international horror and seeing all these different mindsets and perspectives and the way things do differ from state uh, country to country and people that haven't done that and it's weird to think that i have a leg up just because i've watched these fucked up films but it's amazing and that it's so funny because my family does not understand me. <laughs> um, they don't understand the horror stuff. They don't understand like how I can keep watching it. And I try to explain it. And they're like, oh, I guess I get it. But they don't. And that's okay. But I just I think horror resonates with some of us on such a deep level. And it's not traumatizing. It's just like cathartic and enjoyable and great. No matter, you know, no matter how bad a, mov- a horror movie is, there's still something to like, you know, this Donato. <laughs> there's like always something to glean from it. 
my reputation <laughs> wow my <laughs> reputation precedes me um yeah no i still love my favorite memory about exactly what you're talking about is my dad came downstairs and i was watching dead sushi and i think there was like a naked chick being eaten by like pieces of sushi and he just looked at me he's like the fuck (laughs) i don't have an answer for you but i'm gonna keep watching this shit the rest of my life well let me i i want to ask you a question mary beth because you you talk about the thesis that you wrote um in your master's program I've gone through that process as well. It is the weirdest thing you'll ever do because you will never write more in depth and you'll never care more about something and you'll never have less people read a piece than you do when you work on your thesis. So it's like, I want to give you like right now, talk about your thesis. I know it's been some time, but like, what would like, what were the stuff that you were doing there? Because I feel like there are so many really amazing concepts and ideas and stuff that are just like buried at, at, in somebody's C drive because they wrote a thesis Four people read it and we're like, Oh, this is really good. You know, a plus you're, you graduate. And then you never really get to work that into some of the other stuff you do in quite the same way. So I really want to hear what you wrote about with uh, French extremity. Awesome. Um, I will preface this by saying I did manage to adapt my thesis into a piece for bloody disgusting, which is the column I have now because I was not going to let it get buried. (laughs) And I refused to go into academia because I had not a great experience in academia, but Hmm. So I specifically wrote about the movie Revenge, um, Cor- Corley Farge's rape revenge film. And I wrote about how it subverts the typical rape revenge style by lo- using a, um, like an inversion of the gaze. So like a female gaze. And I talk about kind of how that what an inversion of the male gaze looks like and the ways that the camera works to kind of exactly kind of um, reject the idea of gazing at the female body from an objectification and exploitative perspective. So I, and I called it the transformative gaze because I talk, the way I walk through is that I walk through looking at how Jen, the main character starts off as like, you know, she looks like a ditzy blonde and then how she transforms into something completely different by the end. And the whole time we are also undergoing that transformation and realizing that the way we've been gazing at women is very much based around their sexuality and their appearance. And it kind of lets you trans like you kind of transform into something different along with her along the way. So that is what I wrote about for my thesis in a nutshell. Also, I'm I'm, get, I'm seeing a connection too in like full frontal male nudity chase scenes. Without spoiling today's movie too much, there does seem there does seem to be like chasing people around houses while nude is 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 a bit of a theme that has popped up so far in your work. That's a subconscious thing. So I guess I'll do a little bit of thinking about that because I haven't really. Wow. And also, I watched a movie for Fantasia that involved a lot of full frontal male nudity. So like. Bring it up. More. We need more of that in this universe. What, what are your too. thoughts on uh, the Christmas horror film Rare Exports? <laughs> I forgot. Oh my god, I forgot all about the male nudity in that one. But like creepy nudity. That movie's fun. <laughs> I rest my case. I feel like we somebody needs to go back. I hope somebody somewhere right now is writing a male nudity in contemporary horror piece because I feel like that. There, like the deeper you dig, the more there's going to be stuff, and that we need we need to talk about that. We need somebody to do that. Go back to horse. Go back to school, Mary Beth. Go get your PhD and write about that, please. We used to harass John Barkan at Dread Central mercilessly. Me and Anya, we really wanted an entire month dedicated to dicks and horror. Ever call it Dick Month? And we were oh. going to write about exactly what you're talking about. And Barkan would never let us. I love you know, that. we run our own website now, Donato. Just throwing that out there. 
If you, if you, uh, we'll talk. We've been talking about, I'm just saying, we've been talking about the fact that we need some sort of a theme for October. So, uh, yeah, put a, put a pin in that. Let's talk about Halloween. Yeah. Not this month. Dick month. Halloweener. Oh, exactly. (laughs) There it is. There it is. We, we no longer have to think of that. That it's set. It's done. It's actually. Let's just hit stop recording right now. We've got some work cut out. Thank you for joining us, Mary Beth. And we're, we've got to move. We've got to move on to some programming. If you can think of a pun, it's it just is. It, if you can is. pun it, it exists, and now it has become a thing. All right, I do. Before we talk about the movie, though, uh, today's movie. I don't want to give too much away. Um, I do want to ask a little bit about how you translated from uh, academia and kind of stepping back from academia and then going more into cultural writing and, you know, realizing there was a space for yourself in horror journalism. So Mary Beth, what kind of, what made you realize that you wanted to take a lot of the work that you were doing and sort of adjust it and translate it for horror audiences and, and, you know, get the, the dozen, two dozen, three dozen bylines that you have across the internet right now. So I was doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of like online writing before I got my master's. I just, I started, um, a couple months before I left to get my master's, I wrote for smaller sites and I really loved the, I love writing. I've loved writing since I was a kid. So it was amazing to write and like have an outlet. And so I thought, okay, I really like academic writing. I want to go into academia. I'll go get my master's and then um, it'll be great. I'll write books. I'll teach classes. It'll be awesome. And so I went to grad school. I went to the university of Chicago and um, I don't, I don't think I realized how, archaic a lot of academia can be. I think I had a very optimistic perception of it. And so when I kind of realized, like when I wanted to write about horror, everyone kind of looked at me like I had a third eye um, because they were like, horror, really? You want to write about horror? And that really upset me. And then there's like all these accessibility issues and elitism things that I that I read into that I wasn't really comfortable with because I want my, my I will, I, bleh, ultimately I want my work to be accessible for everybody. I don't want it to be like ridiculously high academic highfalutin language that like four people will read in a journal. I wanted my writing to get to fans, to people who liked horror, to people who would read it and understand what I was talking about and not just people who would look at me like, why would you write about horror in an academic perspective? So I learned a lot in grad school. I'm so glad I went. I think it's made me a better writer. And so now I just want to focus all my writing on like pop, like pop academic writing where basically analyzing from an academic perspective, but making it relatable to everyone. So it's not like pretentious if that. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, you were, you were listening. You, you mentioned earlier that you'd started to listen to like the Joe Lipset episode that we did. Um, you know, I, I, I think the world of Joe and I think what you do and what he does are of a piece. I think that, you know, writers that are able to say, like, look, we're not going to pretend like we're coming up with all of this stuff on our own because people have been writing about film in a in an academic context for a hundred years now. Um, but really, just sort of taking the best of the academic world and the best of, of kind of the the mainstream cultural audience, a lot of the criticisms coming out with those in mind, and distilling that and synthesizing that and saying, like, yeah, we can talk about these things and we can talk about it in any way that is going to resonate with you as the reader. You know, if you want to consume this in something that's really heavy and kind of you know, like chewy, we can do it that way, or we can do it in something that's sort of fun and fluffy. But again and again and again, I find that my favorite writers are people like you and like Joe, who are like, they have the academic background, they can use that. They don't have to write like that, but they want you, they want everything that they do to be that 
backed up, you know, that like yeah. that researched and that have that same kind of depth to it um, that you don't always, not a knock, but you don't always find in a lot of like popular film criticism. Oh, I 100% agree. I think I also come by writing from like both a very personal and a very academic perspective, but not academic, but like that perspective. So it's always been kind of weird to find a niche that I fit in because sometimes my work was too personal for academia, but then sometimes I feel like my work got too like jargony. So I think I finally hit a sweet spot where I'm like able to infuse my personality into my work and I'm happy with it. And it's, it's been awesome. I mean, like if I, I keep saying this, but like if I, at 16 years old, who was reading bloody disgusting forums and like trying to find job listings on their site could see now that I've had pieces published there and like, all, like on the internet, like I would cry. Like, it's so cool. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like an awesome feeling. You get to write about horror movies. I mean, like what the hell, what the fuck else could you want? <laughs> and I think it's also just as important for honestly, the entire blogosphere and online community, because I think for a while, horror writing was of a certain voice i would say come, I think no, we all come know on, what come that... on. no 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 do it like a little bit just a little more explicit please all right it was a fucking dude bro wasteland it was no just shit. a bunch of people <laughs> it was shit it was just a bunch of bros who fucking loved hits love seeing girls get killed and like that's all they would write about and not to knock certain sites i think they have evolved since then and the ones that haven't evolved you don't really read anymore because people like yourself people like lipset and all over are bringing this new style of writing to the horror community. And not only is that elevating the, the type of writing we're getting about horror films and the analysis that we're now seeing and honestly opening the door to more people to actually write at academically to a degree about horror. It's also letting horror fans who maybe have always wanted that or always wanted to read something like that, who were a little bit, you know, tepid or timid, did never got that kind of voice. They're getting that now. And it's like so special to see that happening all over again. Also bring other people in because there are the, the hoity-toity people out there that probably would have read something on Arrow in the Head or Joe Blow years ago and been like, the 10 hottest babes in 80 slasher movies. And they're like, yeah, horror fans are idiots. And you know what? It was a thing of a time. It was a byproduct. It was the internet. It happened. But now these people can see these like academic writings and you can see something, you know, like, like again, even the thing that you wrote uh, for Revenge that like, got published in the DVD or the Blu-ray, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I did have, um, I wrote, it wasn't the same thing as my thesis, but it was a more personal um, ed like essay. But yeah, I got to write, like because I tweeted so much about revenge in my thesis, they reached out to me and were like, hey, you want to you wanna write for the DVD? And then I cried. Exactly. And it's like, and you can, <laughs> but like someone on your caliber can do that. It goes out to the world. That gets to other people who all of a sudden have this new appreciation for horror journalism and writing. You can see it in a light that does hit the quote unquote intellectual level that they might be biased on, but they see that and all of a sudden that world, that door is now open. And I feel like we are in a very, very awesome time for horror journalism because I can write my drinking game columns at one place and have fun with it. And then also I can go over to another website and write something about you know, I, I did like a parental horror in 2018 and saying why, like, you know, it was of a time and all these things and like digging into these themes that normal horror dude bros might not care about. But in the same respect, a bunch of other horror people now do. Yep. It's amazing. We are truly living in a golden era of horror criticism. And I feel like we've set the bar really high for the conversation that we're about to have through no fault of our own. Thank you. But, um, I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go out of them here and I'm going to say that we are actually going to live up to that. So we're going to step away for just a second. And when we come back, we are going to bring a Ivy League education's worth of content 
uh, about webcast today's film. So stick with us. We'll be right back. So, you know, this is the part of the episode where we say how grateful we are that people have supported us on Patreon. And it's very true because we've got a lot of fun stuff planned for you this October. I don't want to give anything away, but especially for this October, we couldn't do it without you. Your support means everything to us. So I don't work. I I wish I could tell you right now, but stick with us. You'll see it. Um, But as part of that, you know, every month we've got some or every episode, we've got some really cool questions and shout outs and all kinds of stuff that we want from some of our listeners. So Donato, who, uh, who do we have this week and, and what are they making you say? So this week I will start off with one I, I don't really want to read out loud, but of course, to honor the Patreon, to honor the tier, I, I will force myself to swallow my pride. Our first one is from a Texas native, Patreon subscriber Steph, aka Stephosaurus Rex, aka my old Brooklyn ski wall partner, and she is forcing me to read aloud. Houston Astros finished the 2020 regular season with a 29 and 31 losing record, and I hope the Minnesota Twins sweep them in the playoffs. Also, everyone make sure you're registered to vote and know how and when you're voting. Well, I liked half of that. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm I'm the Astros fan. I don't hide it. I hate that we cheated. I am not pro anything that has happened. I am pro who we have kicked out of our organization because they're scumbags. I just really want to see them win the World Series now to shut everyone up because we still have the talent and I'm standing by that. Listen, we don't need to get in a whole tangent on baseball on this, but I'm glad that you guys removed some of the people that were sexual harassers, that were enablers, all of that. Like there was a lot of rot at the executive level in the Astros they needed to go. But if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. A little bit of cheating is okay. I say this is somebody that primarily roots for the Patriots. It's okay. It's okay. Embrace it. People are going to be pissed off, but people are stupid when it comes to sports. So just be like, yeah, yeah, we cheated. And guess what? We're going to come back and beat you fair and square too. That's what we're trying this year. And I mean, come on, let's be honest. Every team isn't trying some little sport. Come on. It's it's happening. 100%. Hundo P. Hundo, Hundo P. Lindsay T. All right. No one's going to get that reference. but that's No, it's it. great. Yeah, whatever. Keeping that's it good. in. Keeping it in. And our second one is from Mr. Corey Maurer. Corey has a question for us, Matt. It is, hello, Matt. I want to know what your favorite horror movie was from your childhood. Maybe it doesn't hold up for you anymore, but as a kid, you loved it. I grew up on Slashers, so my answer is Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter. Keep up the great work. Would you like to go first? Yeah, so I think the horror movie that I loved the most as a kid is a horror movie I didn't watch until much, much, much later. Um, and, you know, it's something, there's probably a whole article in this, as a matter of fact, I might have to write it, but just that idea that like when you were a kid in the 90s you would end up having toys from movies you had no fucking business watching and so like for years for years in my kid in my childhood i was obsessed with aliens because i had like all of those all of those toys i had like the aliens where you pressed a button on the back of like one of the the spikes and like the chest would explode and the whole alien would fall apart they're all like those weird alien things I found a uh, an old battered cassette tape copy of the Alien soundtrack in my local used bookstore, and I listened. I would like dare myself to listen to that, even though I'd never seen the movie because it was too scary. So, like, yeah, long before I actually saw Aliens and was obsessed with it because Aliens, I was obsessed with the movie as a kid. That just like kept there was this thing, and I had parts of it, and it was so big and scary, and I couldn't like. That was that was to me like my favorite horror movie as a kid. Long before I started watching horror movies, was the version of Alien that I had in my head that I'd recreated with all these toys and stuff that I had. 
That makes me think I had a Predator toy in the same kind of vein where I'd never seen any of the Predator movies. And I know they're horror adjacent, they're more action forward, but I think there's still horror elements in there. So that might play into an answer in another world. But um, my answer is, again, something horror adjacent because we'll get into this when we do our personal episode that was suggested by Corey. And just to tease people, we may do an episode sometime in the future that is just me and Matt talking about our interview questions, how we always interview our guests in the first segment. We might do that to ourselves for an episode and see how that goes. Anyway, my answer to this specific question, what horror, I guess, what childhood horror that uh, I would really back on is Jurassic Park. And again, I don't know if that clarifies as horror to a lot of people, but for Matt Donato, who was averse to anything concrete horror and anything like in that classification of slasher, zombie, anything. I avoided it all as a kid. So Jurassic Park was the one movie that I could watch and keep watching and I was still terrified by it because I had nightmares about the raptors countless times but I can still recognize that this movie was brilliant. What I was watching was basically magic on screen and I think that's my answer. Yeah my younger brother who was born in 89 um, he saw Jurassic Park in theaters and he was so scared that he had to get out and leave the theater and famously fell like was sitting on the car with my dad waiting for the movie to end and fell off and broke his glasses and had to get the stitches and, and everything. But that was whenever we think of like childhood movie moments that Jurassic Park scaring the shit out of my brother was one of them. So that 100% counts. Yeah, I had nightmares about running away from the T-Rex specifically or the raptor, which is burst into a room that I was in in my dream and it would just maul the shit out of me. So yeah, thanks Jurassic Park. Yeah, and thank you, Corey, for that question. It's nice to relive all of that trauma. All right, well, that's enough of that. Let's get back to the movie. All right, welcome back. So today's movie, as you've seen in the title of the podcast episode that you probably downloaded, is Webcast. It is a 2018 film by English filmmaker Paul McGee. It stars Samantha Redford, who has never been in anything before or since. She's amazing. We'll talk about her in a minute. Joseph Tremaine and Nicola Wright. And it is about a young college, well, let's say couple, friends, maybe something more, that are spending their break doing a documentary about the disappearance of uh, Chloe's, the, the name of the main character, Chloe's aunt in 1984, when before she was born and when her mother was a teenager. Um, what starts off as sort of a true crime talking head documentary that they're shooting with friends of the family kind of evolves into something that feels a bit more supernatural, feels a bit more not of this world. And a lot of suspicion is put on Chloe's next door neighbors who may not be exactly what they see, the friendly old couple who hasn't seemed to age in 30 years. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of screaming that goes on from their house at night. So it is a found footage film. Um, so if that is your thing, I'm going to not even bury the lead and say you should add this to your list of found footage <laughs> movies to watch. And it, it's, uh, there, there's, there's just, a, there's a lot here. Uh, I was really surprised by this one. So I want to start the conversation, Mary Beth, with you and saying, you know, you had indicated to us as soon as we said like, hey, let's talk about a movie. You were like, I, I, this is the one. I know which one I'm going to bring to you. So what made Webcast jump out to you as the film you wanted to bring on the show? So I'm a huge found footage person. If you follow me on Twitter, it's like all I talk about ever. Um, and so, and in particular, during this time of like quarantine and self-isolation, I have been digging into found footage films and like the hidden gems on Amazon Prime. 
And so Amazon Prime is like an embarrassment of riches for found footage. And some of it's not good, but a lot of it is really good. And so I had watched something and webcast popped up as the suggested next film. And the post, I will say the poster used for this film is very cheesy and it's not a good representation of the film, at least the one with the woman screaming on the front. But I watched this 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 film and was blown away because it's folk horror and found footage, which I feel like never happens. And it is just so weird and it captures why I love found footage so well in this combination of like streaming technology and cameras, but also the old with the new. And so I... and. I was so surprised to learn that no one had really heard of it. And when I looked on Rotten Tomatoes, there's no reviews of it. Like no one has seen it. And so that's why I was like, we, I have to like get the word out about this movie because it's so good. The production is amazing. And I feel like because folk horror is such a huge thing right now, people would even dig it even more um, because of that angle. Yeah. And I, I, I want to jump in and say that, you know, I, I think you hit two things that are very important right off the bat. One is that we talk a lot about streaming on the show and we talk about access to films and how access sort of dictates what is built into these contemporary canons. Amazon Prime is a great resource because you know it has a lot of stuff you wouldn't expect there, but it's not easy to find. And if you are the fan, if you're a fan of some of these films that have so little presence online, you know, I'm thinking of uh, my beloved, The Hole in the Ground. The Hole in the Ground oh. has a terrible name and a terrible poster. I, it is one of my favorite horror films of all time. I love it more than life itself, but a bad name and a bad poster is not going to get you people that are just browsing to click in and webcast that title, that poster. It's, it is a, not at all what you expect when you start watching this movie, you think you're in for something that is basically unfriended, but cheaper. And it goes a whole different direction. So the film is not doing itself any favors right there in the Amazon queue. It really doesn't. And I always, I was so pissed off that it was called Webcast because her last name is Weber. I was like, come on. I, like, it was frustrating to me because, again, like you said, I'm like, this poster and this title do not, like, there's not really that much streaming or webcasting in the movie itself. And so the marketing really does not do it any favors. And that's why I want to talk about it because it's like, don't let this put you off. It's an amazing found footage film. So let's start, um, let's start with the found footage aspect. Uh, and I want to I want to talk about you for one more second here, Mary Beth. You mentioned being a big fan of found footage films. I know that like they there were a bunch of them, and then they were played out, and then they were back, and people are like, "Well, are they good again?" And are are is there a difference between found footage and screen life? Because now these two separate mm-hmm. branches of the tree are sort of diverging. So, you know, what is your opinion of the current state of found footage, and, and where does webcast sort of fit into everything that we've seen over the last ten years or twenty years or so? That is an amazing question and something I think about like way too often. So I don't think found footage ever got trying to think of how to put this. I don't think found foot. I think people saw found footage as like Cloverfield and paranormal activity and Blair Witch Project and then everything else they thought it was like a pale imitation. But what I see found footage is I see found footage as this fascinating genre that is able to interpret our relationship with technology into horror through the apparatus. This is the academic side of me coming out. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But So it's like, you know, in Paranormal Activity, we see the camera sitting, like, you know, it's the first time we really have like a surveillance camera in horror. And then in Paranormal Activity 4, there's the Xbox Connect that records things. And so I think that every found footage film, no matter how good or bad it is, has something really fascinating to say about our relationship with cameras and capturing the world around us. And so I love that 
kind of idea of found footage. And that's what I go to for that, not just about the scares, but about how the like the technology is used to create scares and how the things that we love and depend on the most are kind of weaponized. And so with webcast, I think again, I think that they do that really well because, you know, it's like a she has a web like a live stream, which is kind of barely talked about that much. But then, you know, she's making a film with her friend. It goes into this whole pagany vibe. And I feel like again, I've said this before, like folk horror has is having a moment. And between that and this, like that moment and this, it's like the perfect found footage film to watch. Donato, your favorite film of all time, your favorite horror film of all time is Wreck. Most people that have listened to the show know this. How did what you you've always been sort of predisposed towards found footage films. Did this scratch that itch for you? So I will play off of everything Mary Beth is talking about there because I, I might be just as big a found footage fan, honestly. Yay! And I, I totally 100% agree with everything you said. And I'm going to take the more personal route. And I will say that what found footage does so right and that what can't really be replicated by other genres is found footage horror is just the most intimate and personal because yes. it puts you in the eyes of the character. You're not watching from a top outside. There's no third person. There's no fly on the wall. You are the character. It is like a video game. You are now this person. So we, immediately, the scares and the tension, it feels like it's happening to you versus watching it happen to somebody else. And I think that when that is done right, married with the technology side, married with the advancements of exactly using the Xbox Connect, using all these different kinds of screen life now and being able to replicate our experiences as tech loving, you know, sheeple, whatever you want to call us, but it's, it's our life and that's what we are. So found footage and screen life, which I do think are separate, but both when they are done so right, it is the best kind of horror and it is horror in its true form, because again, it puts us in the shoes of the character. And if I'm looking at webcast from that side, it, it webcast does all that webcast does everything I've just talked about because while the screen life aspects are pushed to the side, this is basically traditional found footage. We have two characters experiencing a, a, a crime, a mystery, whatever you want to call it, happening in front of their eyes, happening in front of everybody's eyes. And we're getting the real-time kind of recording of everything as they learn and as they go through these reactions, but also as to hit on the intimate side, they grow themselves together, apart, fight, all these things. So what Webcast does right is all those things. And also what it does right is it is basically kind of the Wicker Man meets found footage, which is everything that I want in a movie. Right? Like, how is it not done more often? I don't understand. Like, it's perfect. Because I think because, all right, I, I'll try to answer that. Okay. The Wicker Man is what I would call sunny scary and the wicker man is during the daytime. Mm -hmm. And that requires a lot of maybe those tension moments and those scares quote unquote, because they're not the traditional boo gotcha. It's mm -hmm. hard to replicate that kind of folklore terror in front of, you know, a camera in front of something of that nature, because that's all about atmosphere. That's all about creating a level of unease, I'm not saying it can't be done. I think that's why it hasn't been tried before because the unfortunate side effect of found footage horror is it's also easy to make. So you have a lot of people that sully the name, sully the good name of found footage horror <laughs> by making these unfortunate direct to Amazon Prime movies in their backyard. And what's leaned on a lot is darkness, shadows, 
rustling in, in the distance and blurry dark nighttime vision. So I, I think that's why we haven't got something of this nature yet, but webcast shows it can be done. I agree. And I mean, I think, and like you said, like people make those direct to Amazon like movies and it's true, but there are some really good, like there's another one called leaving DC that I really want, that I was debated talking about. That's another really good found footage film found on Amazon prime. Um, That's really, really good. And so I have like really just browsing um, Amazon prime and like, it's been, it's, it actually has been more hits than this is. And I'm very surprised because again, these movies aren't marketed super well. So their posters are kind of shitty and the titles are kind of annoying, but then you watch them and they're so like, they're so well made for what they are. And you just can't help but admire like the creativity and the artistic spirit behind the people who make these films and like are able to create unique stories. And then, but then they never get seen because people write off found footage and I'm just like, trying to evangelize found footage so more people will appreciate it and give it a chance and not just think of it as like shaky cam at night there's a lot of that and that's and i do enjoy that but there's a lot more to it than that uh i do want to i i want to add my two cents here to the the found footage thing because i i can kind of go back and forth on Mm -hmm. on found footage as a a genre i'm very into screen life paradoxically not as Mm -hmm. much into found footage because a lot of times the good it's it's like anything else the good outweighs the bad and I'm I'm very split on fan footage of the webcast because I think this is such a good movie. I had so much fun watching this thing. Um, I was reading uh, some interviews with the director and the film cost $10,000. This film cost $10,000 to make. That is one down payment on a house. That's three Peloton bikes. That's like, <laughs> that is not a lot of money uh, for you to make a feature length film. And the thing is, for me, kind of the, the the back and forth that I have is like those technical limitations of making a film for $10,000, the ability to do it in a found footage format instantly makes everything easier. So I don't think that there is a world in which you can make, because he's self-financed. He said that that he did the math and he said that he um, that the cost of this film was one Starbucks coffee a day for five years. And that made him feel better about the fact that he'd fronted $10,000 to make this movie. I like. I think you have to make those concessions when you're a micro-budget filmmaker, and you have to be able to say what is the easiest, best, most artistic way that we can make this movie and get it to print. At the same time, it's not webcast fault, but the world it presents is so rich and so interesting, and even the way that they shoot inside some of these like small English, you know, townhouse kind of things. I was found myself thinking of like The Conjuring Two and how much they did. Mm with like those those smaller English home spaces. And of course, like you think of every full core film you've seen as soon as the characters go out in the woods. And I was just like, can somebody give you the money to remake this as not a found footage film? Because I want to see, I, w- I want to luxuriate more in this world. And I want to see what you would do if you had the budget that you needed in order to really like let this breathe. Because there are even, you know, there's a, there's a shot about midway through the film where one of the characters holds up a phone that has digitized archival footage from 30 years ago and kind of puts that against the path. There's a path in the in the archival footage and a path that they're walking at that moment in time. And it sort of lines up like one of those Instagram influencer sites with like the here and now photo things. I was like, I would love to see you be able to do that, like really like sit and give that like 10 seconds on camera because it's such a beautiful shot. So webcast did found this footage so well that I kind of, I'm kind of annoyed that it was found footage. And that's, a, that's like, that's a compliment, but it, it's such a weird, I've never come out of a, a, a found footage film and been so conflicted about the format because I think that there is, I think it would have, I think it could have worked amazingly as not a found footage film. I think a lot of the ideas that it has in there, like it could translate to either format. And I desperately want to see 
you know, the non-found footage version of this movie. <laughs> it's like, I, I see what you mean, but I also am like, but that's why I love it because it's like, mm. I think that's why I love found footage too, is like, I'm, I love vague horror too. And I know that's on everyone's cup of tea, but I love the way that it lets your imagination kind of go crazy with these things. And I love the way that it's like, you know, you can't see everything and you can kind of fill in the gaps and like, really feel like you're one of the people, like I think Matt said this before, like you feel like you're one of the characters, like you are figuring out this mystery with them. You don't really know what's going on. And so you are like, you are them and you're going through this. And if you are in that situation, like you're not going to have all of that lore right away. And so that's why I kind of like found footage in that way. It's like you are learning with the characters. So you then become almost like one of the characters. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that too. Um, yeah. I, I can't really like... Yeah, it's a it's a weird place to be. I've never been like so happy and annoyed simultaneously that this was that a film was a found footage film because I just I want them I want them to have both. I want them to do a found footage version and then remake it as a non found footage version, and then you tell people to watch them together, and you're like, oh, cool, one film done two different ways, and then I would be happy. That would be so think, rad, though. Yeah, it would be. I think I do kind of agree with Monogle, just in the slight sense that the one thing I would have loved to see more of. The shots themselves, yeah, when they're looking at the castle, when they're actually in that folklore atmosphere, it would have been nicer to see it on the wider scope. But my bigger thing, I think, and the one thing that I would have liked to see handled a little differently is I didn't really get a great sense of some of the supporting characters uh, because Mm -hmm. we're in this basically kind of community, we'll call it. You know, all the neighbors kind of hang out. They all dig each other and they seem very close to one another. And some of those characters I just want to see more of, I guess, is the thing. Because from our point of view and staying with the two main documentarians, we'll call them, we only see the weirdness. We see them go outside and we see the neighbor on one side just standing out in the middle of nowhere with a hammer. Or we see the doctor come run and have to administer a shot to a quote-unquote patient who is screaming. So we get the sense that something is not right. I would have liked a little more establishment on the whole community itself. And you get a better idea of what's going on and kind of like the insidious nature of their cul-de-sac lifestyle. Because again, it's quite obvious. Nothing is okay. It's quite obvious. There's something weird happening, but that's something weird. The way that it lingers so long and it just kind of stays in the air. And we are stuck with those two characters perspective where a fly on the wall scenario might've given a little more where we get to bounce between the houses. And maybe we get to see these characters being a little, uh, stranger. I'm trying to, you know, being vague because I want people to watch this movie and be surprised and get all this stuff themselves. But it's just one of the things I I think about now, Matt, from you saying, I wish we had a different perspective, that different perspective. I would have loved to build the world out in the way of kind of blowing that cul-de-sac wide open. I'm going to disagree with you actually on that just for a second here, because the like the extended community was my favorite part about the film, and part of that is that you know these characters are supposed to be if they're university, let's say they're nineteen to twenty two years old, right? Like early twenties, late late teens. That is about the age at which you realize that the people that your parents are friends with are people, and that some of them are really fucking weird. Like I don't know how else to put that, but like I I can so distinctly remember growing up as kind of a community um, that you know, and and maybe this is just because I grew up in a particularly like religious community. My my parents were very Catholic. Church and that community played a big part of that. But I remember kind of navigating from my teens to my twenties, and these people that had just always been around me. Um, I started to see them in a new way, and and I started to be like. You know, some of them, some of them remain cool. There are some people who I think highly of even to this day. And some of them I was like, 
you're fucking weird. And I don't like, I don't think I want to, I don't think I want to be around you anymore. And, and I'm an adult, so I can make that choice for myself, which is, you know, I'm sure they're fine to them and their families. And I hope they don't listen to the podcast, but I can't imagine that they do. But I think there, there's an element of that, that that really resonated with me and I think makes this a timely movie in the sense that, you know, we're going through a really strong cultural generational divide. You know, right now, the joke is the Karens, the boomers, right? Like we've got boomers versus Gen Z. And there's a lot of this like tension between the people that are were supposed to be custodians of the world that we inherited and the generation that is going to step in and inherit it. And that makes this movie, you know, while it's doing this thing that is more folkloric and kind of culty, this generational tension between the two main characters that are in their early 20s and like all of the parents' friends who are older than they seem, but we'll take it at face value, as old as they appear in, in their current form. You know, uh, to me, that, that there was that really good tension of like the people that are just sort of coasting and the people that have to deal with the shit that is put on their plate. I felt that as a, a nice little allegory for, for what a lot of, I think, 20-somethings are dealing with in the world right now. I love that. Also, I thought of an alternative title for this film, Cult de Sac. Oh! <laughs> I would watch that. Boom. Like, it's the name from webcast to Cult de Sac, and it'll be great, and it really rolls off the tongue. <laughs> You'll get a very different, very different audience for that one, I think. Very different. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 my 10 cents on on the surrounding. And I, I do want to give credit, too. Like, this is not a particularly robust cast. You know, $10,000 does not buy you you know, the highest names, even in, in, in the English theater and film scene. And there is not a weak performance in this film. Every single character, even the, like the people that come and knock on the door and be like, oh, hello, you must be Chloe. Like even you watch enough, both of you do, we all three of us do, you watch enough low budget films. You can always tell when they just threw somebody at the screen because they were old enough to be the right age for the character. And everyone here feels like they have a bit of an internal life, which is super interesting to me. I agree with that. I think that's another thing I really liked about the film. I did also gravitate towards a lot of these characters, especially the doctor. And I thought like those characters were really were realized in a, in a way that I'm not always used to in found footage. Um, so and then I think that's one of the reasons why I love found footage, too, is you he had ten thousand dollars and he made this film and it found footage is such a testament to creativity and the willpower of a filmmaker to make something. Obviously not all of the fun footage films are good, but there are so many ones out there that you may like, like this, like webcasts that you haven't seen that are so well made for $10,000 and it have these amazing performances. And it's just, I think it's really like a really hopeful look at what horror filmmaking could be in the next couple of years. A lot of these people are so young. So I hope they get more attention and can make more films with bigger budgets. And that's yeah. what it is. It's always going to be the uh, the starting point for a lot of people because budgetarily, it's the easy way to start. Mm -hmm. And that's also going back to everything we've been talking about, about what makes found footage and why people do it so frequently. It goes back to the fact that the good ones that we talk about standing apart, the good ones that have the narrative and they ha have the imagination and they go places, those are the ones that will rise. And those are the ones that will discover filmmakers. While the unfortunate examples that people always dig up and like to throw against found footage are the ones by the creators who don't have the imagination and they don't have what it takes to kind of pull off the found footage. And, you know, just off the top of my head, I mean, something like the final project where it's just 80 minutes of people walking around the woods with a camera pretending they're in a horror film. And 
that's what pisses me off so much because everyone mm-hmm. gravitates to those kind of examples and like, well, that's found footage. No, that's not. That's a bad example of found footage, but every subgenre has bad examples. You, you can play this game for any subgenre and it's the same kind of thing. Exactly. It's just unfortunate that found footage gets the stigma a lot more because it's so visual and it's so of its own individual um, aesthetic that the bad examples kind of do stick out a little more. Yeah, I I mean, I agree. And I think people already were kind of like, it's. I feel like it's a, such a, divis- a divisive um, subgenre because of like even the way that it's shot with the shaky cam and people get nauseous and have headaches. There's more like of a physical reaction, I feel like, like a lot more with found footage as well, which I feel like has, has colored perceptions of the genre. But then again, like every genre, like there's, there's terrible movies everywhere. That's fine. But like, I, like you said, Matt, like it's, they get kind of singled out as like the worst subgenre, which I think is unfair and not true. There I is no, my friends. Sorry. No, I would go ahead. I said there's no worse subgenre. Let's put it that way, but I'm just very yeah. positive. <laughs> no, totally. And I mean, my friends, you know, when we saw Cloverfield and it came out, I, I went with my, we'll call them my normal friends, not my, like my film friends. I didn't have that group yet. So I went with all like my jock friends and my preppy friends and they're like, all right, it's like a horror film. We'll go with you. We'll do the midnight show. So like we drive through the snow. It's a real ordeal to get there. And they were the ones that walked out going like, what the hell is that? Like just like just like shaky film the whole time. Like it just made me nauseous. Why would I want to see movies like this? And it's like, uh, okay. So that, but that is the perception of too many, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like paranormal activity kind of changed that a little bit because a lot of it is like static cameras which i think is and that i think changed the landscape of found footage a lot um but that's another topic that i I can talk about forever (laughs) yeah and then that started the but nothing happened fuck off bloody happened that movie's terrifying pay attention like this is the thing with found footage films people want to have like a passive viewing experience found footage makes you fucking engage like you have to look you have to really watch it you can't just like randomly check your phone because you might miss something and people don't like that but like if you are actively engaging and enjoying a found footage film it's scary as shit but some people don't want to engage with films like that they want something that's a little bit easier and like the scares are more obvious and they don't have to like scrutinize every part of the frame i guess i get it but like i just think found footage is so much more engaging and asks more of the viewer and if you are able to kind of give yourself to that film and to that like ethos then you're gonna have an amazing time and i, so I, wa- I, well, I was I gonna say tie, tying it back to webcast <laughs> <laughs> I, I i do think that that is one of the things that works because i referenced the wicker man earlier the third act gets very celtic folklorish horror-y in the way that masks are produced and there's these floating apples and spices and all these things like it's very festive and it's very that kind of it's a sunny vibe but that's the third act and we have to get through acts one and two to get there. And that first one and two acts might be the kind of found footage that turns people off because it, it's a lot of, you know, the the two documentarian characters running around and asking questions and, you know, someone might run at the camera, someone might say something suspicious and they just kind of glare, but it is a lot of what people might consider quote unquote generic. But if you're paying attention, it all leads into the rewards that we do reap at the end. It's like kill list. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, and I, I want to jump on that point because we've talked a lot about webcast as a found footage film and very deservedly so. It literally is one and it is a good one as well. But I think, you know, Kill List is a great example. You know, this is also playing in the same thematic depths as everything from Kill List to Midsommar. 
You know, we have Mary Beth, you mentioned it earlier. You know, you can see this in, evidenced in every film made by Robert Eggers and others um, that we're in a really interesting folkloric horror moment in time. And I think that that is as much as this film works as a as as a found footage film, I think the way that it works as a as a folklore horror is is even more interesting. So yeah. uh Mary Beth, I wanna I wanna throw it to you and let you talk a little bit about the cult, the religious organization at the, at the heart of this film and what this adds to this movie, you know, compared to other found footage films, but just sort of within the folklore horror movement or period of time itself. Like what makes this one unique and special? Well, I think one one of the things, I guess it's, it's like because if people are listening to this, this won't be a surprise, but I did not realize it was going to be about a cult. I think that, I said this before, this topic, like folklore is not addressed in found footage quite a bit, like at all. And so ha- combining the two, something that seems impossible, really played out so well because you just get these glimpses of like the masks and like these really quick flashes. And you don't get those same kind of like very like, beautiful and terrifying scenes like in Midsommar or in like Wicker Man where you see the cult like laid out with like tons of flowers and like this beautiful and awful like tableau. I feel like there's a lot of that in daytime folklore specifically. And this one kind of shies away from that a lot. And I, I do like that kind of, you know, staying away from this very obvious like laying out of the horrors and more of like these like quick little clips and like weird moments like with the apple like the apple was wild and so I think it has something really interesting to say about how we can perceive folklore um I know McGonagall you said that McGonagall oh my god <laughs> I did yes, it it, it happened it was gonna happen I'm it was gonna so leave it in there oh my it's god gonna, it was, it's, it's that is not getting cut please continue <gasps> leave it in oh I feel so bad no leave it worry. in there are people. People. there are people that unironically call me McGonagall. So you are you are in good company there. Keep okay. going, please. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> but you were saying um about you know wanting more of that folklore aspect, but I think what's so cool about folklore is when it's mysterious, like kill list. Like I love when it's like was surprisingly revealed at the end. Like what the fuck has been going on this whole time? And I just think there's something that folklore accesses in terms of like primal fears that is so fascinating and ter- like old thing like old things that scare us but filtered through a new perspective hmm. yeah because everything every well, I was going to say everything that webcast promotes on the poster as we said is quite generic everything that webcast to name promotes nothing to do with folklore mm-hmm. so you get this film and as it starts it's about a missing person None of this equates to how the film ends. And what that ending brings to it is completely fresh in the found footage world. Because typically in the found footage world, a film that starts like webcast would end with the uh, lead filmmaker getting dragged away into the shadows or the, the serial killer showing up out of nowhere. Or it's paranormal and the house is haunted and they go into the house and they don't leave. Like that's everywhere where I thought this movie was going and nowhere where it ends so the fact that it's able to put on these sunflower masks and work with burying people underground and all these ritual things plus you see some dicks we've said that already you're you're gonna see some dick i mean it's just in there but all these things exactly it's folklore it gets away with it it's all these things that we don't see in a found footage context normally and somehow they just kind of shoehorn it in naturally 
And the natural is the big part because it doesn't hit out of nowhere. It naturally builds and gets to exactly where it has to be. And it does so in a setting that you kind of wouldn't expect because you're in a neighborhood, you're in this area where it's a bunch of just little posh houses and everyone's just living happily and going drinking wine with each other and doing these cocktail hours and stuff like that. And all of a sudden there's like kind of like an orgy scene and that's where we kind of see things and you know, whatever. And I also, Oh, sorry. I also feel like it does this fascinating thing. And a lot of found footage horror does that, but I don't think full core necessarily does this in sort of like, the sinister underbelly of the domestic because I feel like a lot of folk horror like you're transplant transplanted somewhere different like Midsommar you're going to that weird village and Wicker Man you're going to an island and like it's very obvious that something is wrong but this has more of an uncanny vibe where it makes the folk horror part of like your everyday life and that is so sinister and so creepy and I think that's another reason why I like that is that it's not just like some place covered in flowers and pretty it's like it's all around you and you don't know that. Yeah. I, two things that I think um, about folklore that I'll say here. One is that, you know, I've talked about this before in other places, but I think, I think horror as a genre has kind of moved to a point a lot where mental illness became transitioned from an interesting way of dealing with sort of the real and the unreal and the environment and became like, the you know the 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 ghost that lurks behind everything you know you couldn't find a horror film that was not about mental illness and you, you any of these films were like the characters like am i crazy or is this really happening it turned out that that it, it was the character the character was the killer they didn't know about it split personalities things like that um i i feel a little frustration with that because i feel like that has been a little bit overplayed and i think what what full core allows you to do is it allows you to kind of go back and be like no there are like there are these uncanny things that that you think you're perceiving they really do exist there is something out there that is causing this to happen and again i have to give credit to it because i just i love it so much like the hole in the ground in irish horror film i think does that really well it, it kind of plays with the idea of is the main character seeing what they think they're seeing and the ultimate reveal is oh hell yes they are that you know there are these things that are out to get them these forces that are out to get them and i find that in 2020 i might feel differently in a couple of years if the if the genre sort of like a stream shifts a little bit in a different direction and this becomes the norm. But right now it feels sort of repression to me. And I do like, you know, I, I like with this film in particular, you know, I've been to Ireland before. I've been lucky enough to travel to Ireland and you go and you talk to, you do guided tours and you do museums and stuff. And, you know, their whole sales pitch to you is that they exist. A lot of their culture exists sort of at this intersection of the real and the practical. And then, you know, through the veil, like the uncanny, this other world of mythos and, you know, leprechauns and elves and stuff like that you know ireland has always sort of by intention and and over the years through storytelling it sort of exists on this very thin barrier between what we think of as the real world and like the storytelling the the mythological world that a lot of irish poets and stuff have talked about and i think this film does a really good job of showing how you know we are in such a practical point in our lives you know we live in 2020 technology is everywhere we can't really think that something's going bump underneath the bed in the same way that we might have 20 years ago or even 30 years ago in a horror film and a good full court, it does that. It introduces that element of doubt. It brings back the question of, you know, maybe not in our basement, but underneath our basement, is there something there? Is there something in the old world surrounding us that is trying to come out? And it makes, it makes trees, it makes forests, it makes water. It makes all those things scary in a way that I haven't felt they've been scary in a long time. And, and I, I just, I love it for that. It makes, it makes you afraid of the dark in a way that you haven't been in a while. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I I got nothing to add there. 
Um, there's actually an interesting found footage film coming out of Fright Fest um, called They're Outside, um, which is another folk horror found footage film. I'm, I don't necessarily think it's as good as webcast, but it's really cool to see how the, this like full core genre is being interpreted now into, 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 into um, found footage. So I'm curious to see if that will keep happening or this is just like a flash in the pan kind of thing. Well, let's, let's actually, let's make that the last question then, because at the end of the, these podcast episodes, we sort of like to talk about the reclamation approach and how some of these movies that are really good and deserve an audience, how they find their way back into horror audiences and how they become kind of canon. So looking at webcast, you know, what, what do you think the future of this film is in like five years? Is this going to have the audience it deserves? And if it does, I guess the more complicated question is why, like, what is, what is it going to be that draws people to a film like webcast and makes them say like, Hey, this, whatever we're talking about, found footage films, whatever we're talking about full core. Yes. You've got the paranormal activities. Yes. You've got the killings, but you need to make sure the webcast is in here. What, what gets it to that point? So a weird answer to that question i feel like webcast is going to be cited as the inspiration for a horror movie like i could see someone trying to make a found footage version of like midsummer or something along those lines and they're going to say webcast as the inspiration and then webcast will get a following for that that i don't know why it's like a really oddly specific thing but i feel like because webcast is like so like isn't known super well and it is found footage i feel like it it'll be hard for it to get that love and recognition until maybe someone bigger like does something inspired by it. And I think this will inspire. I mean, I'm hoping that talking about it on this podcast, at least a couple people will watch it and feel inspired by it because it's doing something so fresh and it's doing something so new. And I just think it would, it'll be the inspiration for something very, very cool down the road. Yeah. I think the only way it gets there at this point is through word of mouth. Um, it's not going to get the repertory screening. It's not going to get the unearth at a film festival, something of that nature, because unfortunately with streaming is what it is. And a film like webcast, I mean, this was only came out two years ago and I've been hitting, you know, we've all been hitting horror films pretty hard for the last couple of years and myself, maybe some of y'all too, but I, pretty much get every PR blast I see. And I pretty much take every PR blast that I, that I can write about. <laughs> so the fact that I didn't even hear about this movie until this podcast, and it just kind of appears on Amazon prime. No one knows about this movie. I'm not yeah. trying to my own horn, but if, if I didn't know about it until you brought it to me, uh, Mary Beth, no one knows about this movie. So with that said, the only way it's going to find an audience is through people like us, other people that are into the horror genre that go diving for Amazon prime recommendations. That's how it's going to find its audience. But you know, like I can already say, I'm going to write about this on my, you know, streaming column I do with Evangelista or streaming horror. It's like, now I have another title just to be like, yo, this movie came out of nowhere. Like this is dope. And it's going to have to be like the groundswell approach. I agree with that. And I, I'm hoping that just talking about it more will get people to watch it. And I also, if anyone's going to take something from this podcast, it's, just go into Amazon and just pick things. Like I know it's risky, but it's paid off for me so many times in just the past few months. Like take that risk. Don't look at Letterbox because Letterbox users hate found footage. Um, and I would just say take that risk and dive into the into that part of um, Amazon Prime and see what you can dig up and unearth. Also, don't be afraid to turn things off though, because no mercy sucks. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, there are also bad movies out there, and it's okay to turn them off. But just- Justify your time. Know, your, know what you're worth, but yes, try. Please, God, try. <laughs> and I, I I'm, don't want to... Spoiler, um, but you know we feel strongly enough about this movie, and we feel strongly enough about having Mary Beth on the site that not only is she recording this podcast episode, but she's going to be writing something for us about Whitecast, too, so... You know, my goal, my goal is if we talk about it enough, maybe somebody will give it some swanky, like super small indie Blu-ray release. And then Mary Beth, you write the, uh, you write the, the essay in the liner notes. I think that, that feels like a fair deal to me. I think you, you are the infection point for this movie into horror film Twitter. So I think it's only fair that you get to write the essay for this one. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I want a Blu-ray of this so bad. I think what I'm realizing also is like in liking these movies, I get so sad because there isn't a Blu-ray and it's like, I just, I want to own it. And I know that phys- mm-hmm. this is a research into physical media, but I'm like, give this movie a Blu-ray release, please. So that's my goal. Get this movie. Help Blu-ray. director Paul McGee recoup some of his $10,000 loss. That's a lot of Starbucks coffees he's out. So I'll buy him at least one. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's it. That is our that is our webcast pitch. Um, and I, I feel like I say this a lot, but I'm gonna say it again. That's one of my favorite episodes. I think I think that was a great movie and a great conversation. So I'm really I'm really excited. Like we don't always do the explicit call out. I'm gonna do it here. Go out and see this. Go out and see this because you're going to like it, but also go out and see it because you can fucking rub your friend's face in it that they have it. How often can you say that about a movie in 2020? Also, it's free. I mean, like if you have Amazon Prime, like that alone is worth its weight in gold just to say, hey, it's on Prime. You don't even have to pay the $3 rental fee. Just go click it, click play, and then just sit there. And then it happens. Correct. And then, and then it happens. Great, and it's a great time. And it's not a long movie. It's like barely an hour and a half, if that. And it's a great time. There you go. There's our sales pitch. Um, and at the end of this episode, first, I, I want to say, Mary Beth, thank you so much for coming on. That was a great fucking conversation. But while we're talking about sales pitches, I want to give you a chance to talk about some of your work. So if people want to follow you on social media, if they want to you know, make sure that they're abreast of articles, new podcast episodes, things that are coming up, where should they look? Where's, where's the best places to find your work? So the best places to find my work um, is probably Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. I write for a plethora of places, so you can see all my latest work there. And also I co-host the Scarred for Life podcast with Terry Menard from Gaily Dreadful. So if you want to hear horror writers and directors talk about the movies that fuck them up as children, like give us a follow. It's pretty awesome. We talked to the director of Host the other day. That was really fun. And we talked about Wreck which is really cool. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Then I'll get on that episode. Wait, Actually, what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as a perfect pitch then. You talk about yourself. It's time for you to promote yourself, Donato. What, uh, what do people want to do if they want to follow your writing and, and get some of these, you, you've bragged about it now, get some of these indie movies that nobody else is watching? Oh, I mean, you shouldn't be watching them either, probably. That's the unfortunate side of what I do. But uh <laughs> Yeah, you can follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. And I'm just going to stop saying where I write for because I feel like we never know in these posts. It's going to be like months from now and I don't even know what sites are going to be live at that point. So just follow the, uh, follow the Twitters. We'll see yep. where I'm writing at the time and you can still uh, you can still get my shit. As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter, Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Um, and if you liked what you listened to today, and how could you not, 
be sure to subscribe to Certified Forgotten on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast I think you're listening to. Um, and, you know, visit CertifiedForgotten.com. Donato and I are there sometimes. We write a little bit because, you know, hey, it's our baby and we want to breathe life into it. But we've got Mary Beth coming up. We've got some of really the, the, the coolest people that you've heard of and a lot of voices you haven't heard of yet on the site. So if nothing else, I'm going to bump Donato out of the way too. If nothing else for both of us, please read www.certifiedforgotten.com. You know, come unearth some of the better horror films that other people are writing about too. It's worth it, I promise. But also I'm incredibly vain, so still follow me. Follow him, read, read Certified Forgotten. Uh, there you go, deal breaker. All right, well, that's it for our episode today. Uh, Mary Beth, again, thank you for bringing us this movie. Thank you for talking about academic and horror journalism. And that was a, that was a lot of fun. We can't wait to have you back on sometime soon. If the next movie that you bring us in the future is as good as this one, you can come back anytime you want. It's a tall order, but I'll try. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for letting me continue to evangelize about webcasts and the beauty of found footage horror. I appreciate it. Donato, I don't even know how you're going to take us off. Uh, should I do the normal thing? Yeah, might as well. <laughs>